0: This podcast may contain content that is graphic and disturbing in nature. Listener discretion is advised. It was a place where violent crimes didn't happen. Greenwich, Connecticut, one of the most upscale suburbs in the United States. But on Halloween of 1975, a violent crime would place the town of Greenwich in the spotlight. On that fateful Halloween, the brutal murder of a 15-year-old girl would horrify a community and lead to the investigation and prosecution of a man from a very famous family. This is episode 29, The Martha Moxley Story. Hi, Megan. Good to see you. Good to see you. How are you today? I'm fabulous. How are you? Ooh, fabulous. That's that's definitely trending in a better direction than last time. <laughs> now. <laughs> I'm good. This November is Women in Crime's first year anniversary. Can you
1: believe it? I cannot believe how fast that went. The only reason why we've made it this far, Megan, is because we have such amazing listeners and supporters. We are so blessed with our audience. Thank
0: you all so much for your support, your case suggestions. It's kind of weird to ask for presents for our birthday, but it would really mean a lot to us if you could show your appreciation for the show by either telling your friends about us or by leaving us a review. Or both. Or both.
1: And if you promise, since we can't give you all cake, we'll promise to release an extra two episodes this month in celebration.
0: That's right. We are releasing a new episode each week for our birthday month. We've had a lot of requests
1: to post more shows. And with your support, we might be able to do just that. Speaking of support for the show, now it's time to mention our supporters by name. All right. First, I want to give a big thank you to Jennifer Thomas from Minnesota. Thank you, Jennifer. We'd also like to say thank you to a true lady from Georgia. Kimberly White. And finally,
0: we'd love to say thank you to someone with a very cool name, Oceana from Stevens Point, Wisconsin. I think that's the coolest. I think it, it's such it's a cute. cool name. No matter how you support us, we are super grateful to you. It really does help us keep up the quality content of the show.
1: If you'd like to support the show, you can go to Patreon or our website, womenincrimepodcast.com where you can see links there. You can also find the links in our show notes. And now let's get into the case of Martha Moxley. Have you heard
0: of the Martha Moxley case?
1: I think everyone's heard the name. I cannot tell you that I know the details
0: of the case, though. I am really interested to get into this with you. A couple of our supporters have actually asked us about which crimes or which cases stay with us. And I cannot believe I forgot about this case because this one stuck with me for a really long time. And one of the books I even read on this, I remember reading the book and then I couldn't sleep for four nights after. I was so terrified, so scared. I'll I'll give you an insight a little bit maybe as to why I felt that way. But before we get there, let's talk about Martha Moxley. Martha was a young, vibrant 15-year-old girl who lived with her parents, Dorothy and David, and her older brother, John, who was very close in age to Martha and who she was reportedly very close the family had recently moved to Greenwich, Connecticut from California. And that was, you know, 1975. I believe they moved the year before in 1974. They lived in the private gated community of Bell Haven, located in the town of Greenwich, where it seemed by all appearances that they would be very safe. You know Greenwich, Connecticut, correct? Yeah, I used to be a nanny in Greenwich, Connecticut. Are you kidding? Mm-mm. Oh, I didn't know that. Okay. Yes. so you it's kn- a gorgeous area. It's beautiful. And it's, it, I mean, it's, It's widely considered, you know, Mm -hmm. one of, like I said earlier, one of the most upscale communities in the country. Martha was a sophomore at the time. And aside from her obvious physical beauty, she was reported to be bubbly, friendly, likable. She was voted by her classmates as having the best personality, which you can actually see when you look in her pictures. And I encourage everyone to look at some of the pictures of her. Martha was a good student, and she was someone who participated in school activities, having just tried out for the cheerleading squad. She was a nice, outgoing girl who had a lot of friends and seemed happy to be doing all the things that teenage girls typically do. In Martha's group of friends and living adjacent to their property in the community of Bellhaven, were 17-year-old Tommy Skakel and his younger brother, 15-year-old Michael Skakel.
1: I've heard those names.
0: Okay, well, then I don't need to ask you who are the Skakels. You've heard them. But for people who don't know them, let's give a little background. Tommy and Michael's father, Rushton Skakel, was a very prominent businessman, but he's also famous for being the brother of Ethel Kennedy. And, you know, Ethel Kennedy was married to Robert F. Kennedy. It's often been said that the Skakels had the money, but the Kennedys had the power. And that's how these two, you know, kind of dynasty royal families, and I shouldn't say royal, but Mm -hmm. these are these kind of two iconic families merged together. The Skakel home, however, was not reportedly the most loving or stable home. Rushton Skakel was an alcoholic, and there were tensions between many of the seven Skakel siblings and their father and each other, according to one of the Skakel children. So she had said, I think Julie was the only girl that... Each, each sibling had a tension with the father and with each other, and it just wasn't a happy vibe in their home. And the situation substantially worsened when Anne Skakel, Rushton's wife, passed away from cancer in 1973 when all the children were quite young. Wow. Yeah, after that, Rushton was gone a lot, leaving these kids mostly unsupervised. Not surprisingly, they start to get in trouble with the police. Nothing too major, but Rushton had formed this relationship with the police and would get them out of trouble, but the boys' relationship with each other was also reportedly a problem. Tommy was older, he was handsome, he was popular, he was athletic, he seemingly had it all, right? Whereas Michael was kind of smaller, described as more puny, not anymore, but he was living almost in his older brother's shadow all the time, and apparently, there were some very physical altercations between the two who fought very often, I don't think that this is, I'm not sure it's totally atypical of sibling rivalry, but according to some sources, it was really knock down, drag out kind of fights. And this relationship and these altercations would play a role later on in the criminal case that we're going to discuss. So just keep that in mind. So we have Martha Moxley and we have the Skakels, Tommy and Michael Skakel. Let's get to the night of the crime. This was the night before Halloween, 1975, and it was mischief night. Mm-hmm. So, do you know what mischief yeah. night was? That's when you spray that, not spray paint. Uh, what's it called? Shaving cream. People's yes. houses. Toilet paper. Yes, of the course. most fun night of the year. I love toilet yes. papering people's it's houses. Fun. I thought it was fun too. Right? Uh, you bring the eggs. Remember? <laughs> oh you, yes, of course. Although I always hated the eggs because they hurt. Yeah. Like, why would you throw away? Yeah, that was waste the food. Martha's father was away, and she had asked her mom to go out. Uh, Martha's mother is Dorothy Moxley, and Dorothy would become a really big advocate for Martha later on. So keep her in mind. She had asked her to go out, but Martha was grounded for staying out late one night the week before. It was small petty stuff, but. Also, Martha was kind of unrelenting, like, please, please, please. You know how that goes, Amy. Mm -hmm. And I feel bad because Dorothy said no, but she eventually relented and said, yes. Dorothy had said that, okay, but you have to be home by 10 p.m. Because I believe this was a school night as well. Martha leaves the house for mischief night. She's got her eggs. She's got her shaving cream. And she leaves along with her other friends. And they go over to the Skakels house because the Skakels are having a party, which is not uncommon. Remember, there's seven of them. They're alone all the time rotating people in and out rushton's gone a lot on business on this particular occasion uh, rushton skakel was on a hunting trip but i just don't think he was you know a present father around 9 p.m michael uh michael skakel and martha were hanging out martha was friends with both tommy and michael so tommy and michael are kind of in the same crew you know they're brothers but they have their own friends martha's in with both of them she's sort of in between their ages too so she's hanging out with michael and some other kids but then Tommy joins in and takes over some of the attention from Martha. I'll get to it later on, but Martha describes her relationship with both Michael and Tommy a little bit in her diary entries, which they would later on use in the investigation. At that point, some people were going to another kid's house to watch a movie, and Michael was one of them. And he asked Martha, do you want to go? But Martha and Tommy both decide not to go. Were any of them romantically involved? At this point, it's unclear not really but later on descriptions nothing that you can verify let's kind of. put it that way all right so martha and tommy at like 9 something they're last seen you know staying behind and i think you know it's it's implicated that they were hanging out with each other and mm-hmm. that's why they decided to stay behind by midnight when martha isn't home dorothy starts making calls and finds out that martha was last seen with michael and that's what people remember so she calls the Skakel house but she's told by another sibling and i believe it was julie because I believe Julia is the only um, female sibling, that Martha left her house at 9.30. And remember, they live right next door mm-hmm. or adjacent to each other. So Dorothy Moxley starts freaking out because if at, night, at midnight she left, you know, she should have been home by now. So she calls the police. And from what I've read, the police did start doing some searching around the neighborhood, but they couldn't find Martha. By the next day, I mean, you know, the next morning, the next afternoon, Dorothy's frantic. She has neighbors coming in, people helping. She's gone over, I believe, to see the Skakels. And I think she reported in one of her interviews, she said something like, Michael Skakel answered the door. You know, he looked a mess, hung over. He basically told the same story, you know, last time I saw her. And Dorothy left. And so... There are neighbors coming in from all different parts of the lawn. So Moxley's lived on about two, two and a half acres, but you could cross through as neighbors. You can Mm -hmm. cross through some of the trees. One of the neighbors coming to visit Dorothy through the yard discovers Martha's body on her own property. And she's lying face down. She's at the edge of the property, though. So I just want you to understand because people go like, how did Dorothy not know that? Well, if it's two acres and she's on the edge and, you know, she's not thinking she's on her own property. The injuries to Martha were substantial. Her skull had been crushed from behind, and she had stab wounds to her neck. It was so bad. And I I mean, really, when they say bludgeon, it was so bad that they couldn't tell what color hair she had because there was so much blood. And she, remember, had like very Mm -hmm. long blonde hair for people who don't know. Her jeans and underwear were also pulled down to her ankles. So we have Mm -hmm. some, you know, that tells us there might be some indications of a sexual Mm -hmm. assault. They call the police. Greenwich officers arrive shortly after to process the scene. But here's the problem. Things go awry right from the start because Greenwich officers, when do you think the last time they had dealt with a homicide was? Probably never. Never. None of the investigators and a lot of them involved in this case had ever processed a homicide because homicides, again, don't happen there. Don't happen in Greenwich. Things start going wrong. I'll tell you what they found. I'll tell you what they didn't find. And I'll tell you how they kind of blundered the scene. They find the head of a six iron golf club, Mm -hmm. a very bloody golf club on Martha's property. Mm -hmm. And I think they realize, obviously, this is going to be, you know, the weapon nearby. They also find another piece of the golf club that's covered in blood. But do you know what that tells you? You get the indication they find one piece in one area, and one piece in another. Whoever used the golf club hit her with such force that they cracked in it. Went okay sorry, everywhere. I didn't know so you're we getting at okay right i know I, I should have been. i could have been a little clearer on that one no that's one. okay yeah. but they didn't find the handle or at least nobody said they found the handle until years later when one of the first responding officers would tell a very famous investigator who I'll introduce in a little bit that he actually did see the handle but hold on to that and i'll okay. get there i promise but so right now yes we see a very bloody golf club you can already tell this is kind of a rageful mm-hmm. situation, or there's such force. A matching set of golf clubs was found in the nearby shed of the Skakels home. And guess what was missing? The Six Club. Why were they even at the Skakels? Are you going to get there? Right now, you know what happened is that they were searching the area, and their properties touched. Oh, and gotcha. I think it was like the the clubs were there. It was kind of an open site. It wasn't okay. like they went and searched but they found it quickly. It wasn't like
1: they got a search warrant to search. Not doctor. at all. Okay. They just found
0: it as they were surveying and the And they property. were very quick to put the pieces together? Very quick. Okay. Very quickly, they were able to. It also, the, the golf clubs were engraved um, with Anne's name. So they were able to establish immediately that this golf club was the missing one and that belonged to the Skakels. Martha's body was removed from the scene later on. But the scene was not preserved. And what I mean is that several people had moved her body in several different directions and just take it, or before forensic processing was done. So too many people, first of all, on the scene. They let every investigator on. They're not coordinating mm-hmm. it off. You know, you have to preserve the scene for forensic And I'm assuming evidence. the mother was touching the body, or, you know, I would... I don't think uh, she did, but I think there were just so many investigators. And what happened was also, they first came, there was two police officers first responded. And they were supposed to, you know, guard the body, stay with it. But one of them went off to, because I think he may, may have even seen the, the golf, part of the golf handle. And another one went back to make a call or do something. So basically, they both left her unattended. And when they came back, there's a dog running around her body. Oh, so, I mean, you've got a dog. You've got too many people moving the body, too many people touching it. They're not preserving it. You know, her body's not staying intact. So they likely lost a lot of vital forensic evidence or tainted it at the very least. The dog was licking blood in the area, which is terrible, right? But it's also now you're tainting it with dog saliva. The police talked initially to Michael Skakel. He said he saw Martha last around 9.30 when he was leaving the house, and he said he went off, he watched a movie, he came home around 11.15 and went to bed. Seems consistent with, you know, what he had said before, or, you know, people had seen him go off and watch a movie, or he was supposedly going to. They interview Tommy Skakel next. And he said also, yes, Martha left at 9.30. And after she left, he says he watched TV with their new tutor, a new live-in tutor, whose name was Ken Littleton. And eventually he worked, he says, I watched some TV with him. And then eventually I worked on a paper for school about Abraham Lincoln. Who has a live-in tutor? Oh, I'll get to that in a <laughs> okay. second. It's, it's like, yeah. Uh, Tommy took two lie detector tests, one of which was inconclusive and the second of which He passed. But interestingly, no teacher of Tommy Skakel's ever gave such an assignment as working on Abraham Lincoln because they went to his school and they're mm-hmm. like, let's, let's see. Not one of his teachers gave that any time in that. I'm sorry, but can you remind me, because I keep getting the two boys confused. Which one was the older one? Tommy. And who was she left with? She stayed back when yeah, everyone left. Yeah, she stayed back with Tommy. Gotcha. Okay. Michael was the younger one. He left. He went okay. to the movie. Yes. So even though Tommy lied, this is interesting, right? His first test is inconclusive. He... Lied about the paper, but he still passed his polygraph. I always find it interesting because there are so many cases that I know I could name probably five offhand where people have either passed or failed polygraphs. And later on, it was shown that the, the polys were wrong. That's why they're not admissible in court. I know, I know. They're very reliable. I know. Uh, And they can be really helpful in first establishing like a direction. But what also happens is if someone fails a polygraph, then it's like the tunnel vision comes in. And because they're not reliable, that's Mm -hmm. the problem with polygraphs. Even though they can be a useful tool and I know that it's improving. Uh, We just have to keep that in mind. But police did not secure a search warrant for the Skakel home, even though they knew the golf club belonged to them. Rather, so they, they couldn't have done... I think every, they were really bashed for that. But I listened to a, a legal commentator who said, look, they couldn't have gotten the search warrant like car blanche for the whole house and just search what they would have had. It was a limited scope search warrant looking for this missing piece of the golf club, the handle. Get this. OK, instead of getting a search warrant for that, the police asked the Skakels for a consensual. Like, would they agree? OK, Skakel say yes. But they ask Julie Skakel, a sibling, can you search the house for this piece of evidence? <laughs> they didn't even do it themselves no so they how have, old was julie and eight, 18 years old oh my god but you have have you ever heard no, of such that's a ridiculous thing? they have a member of the family of po- possible suspects asking to go through and will you report evidence that she why found why is that
1: cuz they wouldn't consent to them coming in i have
0: no they i have no idea why they did this <laughs> okay. it's it's really unclear at this okay. point so you can see from the beginning of the investigation they're botching a lot here they look at Tommy, they look at Michael, but they also investigate Ken Littleton. New tutor to the boys, 23 year old Ken Littleton actually moved in the day of Martha's murder, thinking he scored a great job with the Skakels. What happened is essentially that the kids weren't doing well in school. Tommy was an athlete. I don't know what Michael was doing, but Michael was also, you know, had addiction issues at that point. So Rushton's like, here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna like kill two birds with one stone. I'm gonna hire a tutor who's a little older to live in and supervise them, and then tutor them also. It's bizarre. It's bizarre, but I mean, it's almost like the nanny tutor. Yeah. You know, I've I've heard of it before, and he's he basically, I think, said Ken Littleton said he was paid like four hundred dollars a week and free room and board wow. in this beautiful home. Mm-hmm. So he was like, "Why? This is a great gig mm-hmm. for me," you know. Well, until things quickly changed. Yeah. Ken was questioned by the police and he told them that he'd watched television. Uh, the French Connection series premiere that night was on. And yeah. No, never mind. I thought, I thought you were saying Love Connection. Remember that show? <laughs> I What's don't think, French Connection? Uh, it was a police show, oh, I think. Okay, but, but there was specifically that there was a car chase scene. And he said Tommy was actually watching with me. And Tommy had also said I was watching some TV with the tutor. But Littleton failed two polygraph tests right off the bat. He fails them. Littleton came under a cloud of suspicion, really, for years and really deteriorated under the pressure, whether or not it was because he was lying or just because he was in the spotlight, you know, being thought of as a suspect in a Mm -hmm. famous crime. He became a very heavy alcoholic who suffered several breakdowns Mm -hmm. and attempted suicide. He also sustained several arrests for a variety of crimes, usually related to his heavy drinking over the course of several years. And I read like from some of the people, like an ex-girlfriend of his, that he also would become very upset around Martha's anniversary. Mm. And he was very emotional. He was also paranoid. He had a lot of these things. So whether or not it's because you know he had some involvement or just because he was a suspect and this time brings up all of those things, we don't really know. So regardless, Ken Littleton cooperates with the police. And at some point, again, in the early 1990s, he took two more polygraph tests, both of which he failed again. How do we look at this? Again, are they reliable? We're talking about four polygraph tests. I read somewhere else someone said five polygraphs. He's taken a number. You could say that he was an alcoholic. He was mentally unstable, did not handle stress well. He actually said that it was, he took those polygraphs at the end of very stressful sessions. He said that his life was ruined after this. In the end, the police did not go forward with Ken. He has always denied any involvement in Martha's murder, saying that he had never even met the girl before that night, and he had absolutely no motive to kill her. He moved in. He was grateful for this job. He said this is the worst thing that's ever happened to his life and ruined him as well. Mm -hmm. All right. So we've got three suspects now. Remember, that's the 1990s. Between 1976, 77, and 1991, there's like no movement on this case whatsoever. Wow. They don't have They one. didn't have DNA? Nope. They just don't have anything. Did they do a rape kit on her? It's a really good question. So what they said was that there was no evidence of sexual assault, even though initially you think because her, her pants are pulled down and whatnot, it looks like that. They couldn't find any obvious trauma or any obvious sexual assault. One of the investigators uh, is going to come up with a theory on that. But for the substantial period of time, you have a a really just a lull. They can't do anything. People are, you know, critical and speculate that it's, you know, because it was Rushton Scakel And mm-hmm. the cops were afraid and they were friends with him. And they, they even say that, like, Rushton paid some of the cops, like, to do security and other mm-hmm. things. So I'm not sure if that part is true, just so you know. But here's how... We get a renewed interest in the Skakels and in this case. In 1991, William Kennedy Smith went on trial for rape, putting the family and the Moxley case in the spotlight again. Do you remember this trial? Yep. Okay, so what happened? Well, it was suggested quickly that maybe William Kennedy was the one who raped and killed or just killed Martha Moxley. Why? Was he even there? No. So that's the point, right? They go, they go like, oh, this guy's in the, you know, maybe he was connected to this because he's a Kennedy. And, <laughs> It became like just this rumor and they were able to disprove it pretty quickly, but it put the focus back on this case. Like why? We've got Kennedys and Skakels and Mm -hmm. we've got- The Kennedy curse. Exactly, right? So- People are interested again, and the investigation starts moving again. But ironically, it was Rushton Skakel's investigators who provided a lot of the damning information that would come out. So Rushton hired Sutton Associates in 1991 Mm -hmm. because he was looking to clear Tommy's name and put an end to this. The way he felt, this has been hanging over us for this long. Now we're back in the spotlight again. Unfortunately, this plan backfired because... What the Sutton associates would reveal is that Tommy and Michael both completely changed their alibis for the night, 16 years later.
1: I have a question. If you're hired by, so they were, they're were a private firm that were hired. They're private to do independent work. So is there not a conflict of interest to report things that, are not in favor of your client?
0: I mean, good for them. I think that's great, but... They were very reputable. But of course, we would argue the same thing. Like, well, it's kind of like, you know, hiring an expert, an expert and yeah. you're paying them. They're going to find... You'd hope they're finding more, things more favorable. But that was not the case here. In their investigative report, they say Tommy lied to the police. And now his new story is not that he said goodbye to Martha at 930, but that actually it was closer to 10. And that they engaged in some sexual activities with each other, which he described as mutual masturbation of each other. Yeah. A little good old-fashioned fun. But this is, okay, Tommy's changed his story, and it's a little strange, but Michael changes his story, and this is where things just get weird. So Michael says, yes, he came home after the movie, but he was out roaming the neighborhood. And he wound up outside Martha's bedroom because there's a tree somewhat near. So he says that he climbed the tree and was throwing rocks at her window. He he had a, a thing for Martha. Okay. Uh, so he's he's throwing rocks. She never answers. So instead of climbing back down the tree or and going home, um, what he does is that he masturbates in the tree to Martha. <laughs> Why would he tell anyone that? There's a theory on why he made up this story, if it's true or if it's not true. There's theories oh, on what, as to why he would say that. But this is again bizarre. And every you know, every, everything I watch, every documentary or show I watch, people like this is now a bizarre you know thing. Um, so he says you yeah, don't admit to doing something like that if you do it. No, That's bizarre. It, it was theorized that possibly they, he came up with this bizarre story with help to try to explain why they might find DNA because while they didn't have a lot of DNA. They had some. But if he was masturbating to her bedroom, she wouldn't be there anyway. You're absolutely right. The crime scene, though, was... Nearby. It was also... Martha's body had been dragged. She was. And I'll tell you oh. the theory when we get to okay. the theory. Like, she wasn't just hit in the spot and died. It looked like her body was dragged 30 so to 40 So he's saying, feet. if you
1: find my semen anywhere on the property, this might be why.
0: Exactly. Wow. That's the theory. Other theory is that mm-hmm. maybe that was just the truth, and he's too embarrassed to say it. <laughs> okay. So you ha- you have some shocking revelations here. Then in 1997, Dominic Dunn becomes involved. Do you know who Dominic Dunn is? Remember, you covered... Dominic Dunn, his Dominique daughter. Dominic Dunn, yes. Right. So yes. we covered his daughter. Dominic Dunn, remember, after the murder of his daughter, became involved in very high-profile cases where he thought celebrities or famous people or rich people mm-hmm. were getting away with yep. crimes. So Dunn gets involved, and he reaches out to Mark Furman. Do you remember Mark Furman? Of course I remember Mark Furman. Okay. Disgraced O.J. Simpson detective. But Dunn and Furman had formed a relationship during the O.J. Simpson trial, and Dominic regarded him as a good investigator, as a strong investigator, even if he was, you know, Mm -hmm. perjurer and and racist. Um. So Don reaches out to Furman and he asks him to look at the case and investigate this over again. He says, look, this thing was botched. So will you do it? Furman does a lot. I mean, he does his own investigation. He looks at the Sutton reports. He really goes over it thoroughly. And he concludes after his investigation that he knows who committed the crime. Mm-hmm. And he says... The person who did it is Michael Skakel, the younger brother. Mm -hmm. Here's what he comes up with. Furman theorized that Michael was enraged by Martha's involvement with Tommy and that Michael likely walked in on something going on with the two of them when he came back. In a fit of rage, uh, Furman says that he probably chased after Martha, yelling at her or, you know, trying to get in with her and that Martha was likely like whatever and leaving and going home. She's on her way on the path. And then because it's a, a weapon of opportunity, he grabs the golf club and chases behind her and he just starts hitting her and he just keeps hitting her full of rage, anger. He's also he's definitely been drinking mm-hmm. and I don't know if he was using other drugs, you know, so in this state and this rage state, he bludgeons her. But then it looks like he may have returned later. So those bludgeons may not have killed her. Um, Because she was, later on, there was some time between stabbed in the neck with that golf handle. Now, remember the golf handle that no one Mm -hmm. could find? Furman says that he talked to the first responder, one of the two police officers who first responded. And that police officer says, I saw that golf handle. I saw it lodged in her neck. And then later on, I never saw it again.
1: The person who originally saw her body, did they corroborate that? She didn't get that close to see that. She just saw her lying face down terrified.
0: So that responder said, I'm positive I saw that, but I never saw it again. It never came into evidence again. Why
1: wouldn't they say, was he never interviewed the first time around? Like,
0: why would that not have come up? That's a really good question. And that's maybe one of the deficiencies of this. Yeah. Furman then theorizes, and I'm not sure that I go with this, but possibly that Michael may have pulled down her pants and masturbated over her as well afterwards.
1: They found no evidence of that.
0: No evidence of that. But I think there's, you know, what's the explanation for why her pants are down? Although maybe someone was also trying to make it look like sexual assault. I was going to say the exact same thing. Yeah, I'm not sure that I buy. Or maybe into. somebody was going to assault her, then they got scared, they ran off. I was thinking that too. I don't think I buy uh, Furman's last part of that. Well, does scenario. he have
1: anything to back that up? Any evidence? No. To support that? No, no,
0: not from what I, not from what I saw. Yeah. He also theorized though that Tommy and or Ken Littleton must have known that something happened due to the sheer amount of blood that Michael would have had on him. He said, look, he would have come back covered from head so to toe. So they think he was
1: they were covering for him?
0: Yeah, Furman thinks that someone- Why would Ken cover for him? Well, I don't think Ken Littleton was. He More likely Tommy. Yeah. Um, he says it's possible also because Michael was so little and the body was dragged- so could he have dragged? He could have dragged it, just to be clear. He was 120 pounds and so was Martha. Okay. Her body was dragged it looked about 40 feet, but not for nothing when I when I went through a physical test, yeah. I, I when I was 120 pounds, mm-hmm. I dragged a 180 pound dummy 3, you know, 30 feet. So Plus,
1: Remember adrenaline gives people super strength?
0: It does. I don't know that you would say anything about Ken Littleton. Perhaps Tommy was involved. I have absolutely no Please idea. Please tell me this
1: is solved. Mm, you'll hear where we're oh. going with this.
0: Sherman wrote a book called Murder in Greenwich. That's the book that I read, Mm -hmm. published in 1998, laying out all the evidence and all of his conclusions. And this fueled the investigation again. There had been a, a prosecutor for a while who didn't think the evidence was there to go after Michael Skakel. But the new prosecutor felt differently. And on January 19th, 2000, Michael Skakel was indicted for the murder of Martha Moxley 25 years after Wow, where was he then? Still in Connecticut. But was he like living a normal life or he was all... No, no. he had a really rough go of it. He had a long history of substance abuse. His life was in and out of rehab facilities. So things were not good. The curse of, you know, the Kennedys applied to the Skakels. In May 2002, Michael Skakel goes on trial for the murder of Martha Moxley. Evidence of Michael's confessions to the crime were admitted at trial, as well as the journal of Martha Moxley, in which she discussed her relationship with the Skakels. Hmm. I'm going to talk about both pieces here. In her diary, she said that Tom had been making advances on her. He kind of put the Mm leg, you know, he put his hand on his leg and whatnot. And she said that she didn't reciprocate and that she really just wanted to be friends with him, Mm -hmm. to be honest. She had a boyfriend at the time, too. They looked at him as a suspect, quickly, quickly cleared. Mm -hmm. They looked at other people. But so in her diary, she's saying, like, I want to be friends with them, but I don't really, you know, want to do anything. She discussed Michael acting like an asshole to her. She said he leads her friend on when he doesn't even like her friend. She said that Michael had said a couple other things to her in instances where he was drunk and acted, you know, kind of like a jerk to her. Mm -hmm. This is all hearsay, but it does provide a little insight to her feelings about them and the complications of these teenage relationships. You Mm -hmm. see in this, like, Tommy's kind of like making a move, but you know, and and she actually says at the end, I should probably stop going over to their house, Mm, which is so sad. I know it is sad. Michael Skakel's own words though, these confessions that we're talking about, well, uh, this would hurt him at trial. So His bizarre, you know, that change story Mm -hmm. uh, on the night of Martha's murder, he discussed it with an author when he was writing or working on his own book. Mm -hmm. And he gave the story again about like the masturbating outside um, her window. And there were some other details that were just inconsistent. So they use his words like now he's changing his story. But they're also presenting several witnesses who claim that they heard Michael confess to killing Martha in some shape or form. Though I have to tell you, none of these witnesses would testify. I heard him say, I killed Martha Moxley. It always had different variations of something bad that I did. I hurt someone once. And these witnesses would also be controversial because a few of them were from the Elon School. Have you ever heard of the Elon School? Mm-mm. This was in Maine, and it was a, re- a reform school for use with substance abuse and behavioral issues. And
1: Michael went there at some point? He
0: did. Rushton put him in that school at some point because he was out of control. Mm-hmm. So he had two witnesses who came forth and said, absolutely, he confessed to doing this. But they also both have their own addiction issues. So you have to also consider, even if they're honest, the reliability factor here. Were they incentivized at all? They weren't incentivized. No, from what I know. All right. However, the defense comes and they present their own witnesses from the Elon School who claim that Michael Skakel was beaten. He was forced to fight other students in makeshift boxing rings. He was forced to wear a written sign that urged other students to confront him about being a murderer. He was essentially like subjected to torture, which other students said was very common of the Elon School. They were abusive and they used abusive tactics. So they're, you know, talking about these troubling allegations. So. But what would be the
1: purpose of that just to say that he was troubled and harassed? Like, how does that speak
0: to the issue at hand? Well, they're saying that if he did confess, it's because these these people forced him to. They're gotcha. beating him. They're okay. saying, you're a murderer. Yeah. Say it. It's okay. like, you know, almost like that scared straight yeah. tactic. okay. So that really kind of taints that, that testimony as well. And just so you know, the Elon School closed in 2011 after years of these types of abuse mm. allegations dating back to the 70s. So I don't know how much credence you want to give mm-hmm. this, but it, it wasn't up to us. It was up to the jury. And at the end of the day, After their deliberations on June 7, 2002, the jury found Michael Skakel guilty of the murder of Martha Moxley. He was sentenced to 20 years to life in prison, but that is not the end of this story. I'm assuming you'll get to it, but Tommy and Ken were never... Tommy was not charged with any crime, and neither was Ken Littleton. In fact, Ken Littleton was given some type of immunity to testify against Michael. He had said that Michael displayed disturbing behavior, and I'm like, how do you know that? Yeah, that's not really... Right. Anyway... We're not at the end. He served 11 years in prison, but he appealed. And while he lost his initial appeals, he won an appeal in 2013 on the grounds that his lawyer, Mickey Sherman, provided ineffective counsel. Wow. I know, very rare. We've we've talked about direct appealing (laughs) here. Why he didn't utilize witnesses to support Michael's alibi, and he didn't point to other suspects, such as the most obvious suspect in this case, Tommy Skakel, his brother. I'm assuming he was a very well-known attorney since they had money. Yes, he was. In 2016, his conviction, Michael's conviction, was reinstated by the Connecticut Supreme Court. But get this, in 2018, the same court, the Connecticut Supreme Court, reversed itself and vacated Michael's conviction. On grounds of ineffective assistance? Well, that, those were the original grounds. There was a really odd situation I read that happened. Like a new One judge had retired, and a new judge took his place. And this new judge, who they said should be the one who should be deciding, ruled in favor of reversing the decision, which is a very rare That's event. That's extremely rare. That means immediate release. This means that Michael was freed from prison, and he is technically innocent because they vacated his conviction— so he can be tried again but I That'd doubt he ever will. They've talked about like trying him again yeah. but it's it's so hard. The evidence wasn't strong then. It's harder They're as not it gets further from time. I don't yeah. think so. But you know, it was a very hard road for Dorothy Moxley and also for her son John. Unfortunately, Martha's father David died of a heart attack at age 57. But Dorothy and John had been advocates. They did every media appearance. They sat at every day of trial. You know, she really wanted justice for her daughter, and they really believe that Michael Skakel is guilty. This is not exactly the end of the story, though.
1: How is that possible? <laughs> I know. I just
0: have a. I just have a little bit more. Wow. Enter Robert Kennedy, Jr. I'm not sure if you know him, but he's also yeah. a lawyer, and he writes this book, Framed. Okay, and he's he's writing this about his cousin Michael Skakel. So Robert Kennedy says that I have new information that's going to show that there are killers that are walking free, and I know who they are. I can tell you exactly who they are. He says that a young, prominent male named Tony Bryant, who was cousin of the late Kobe Bryant, Mm -hmm. who lived in Greenwich, who had also come from a very prominent family, he moved to New York, but he would still bring his friends back to Greenwich, where he used to live. So he would still come in back and Mm -hmm. hang out with people. Tony says that on that Halloween night that he brought his two friends to Greenwich and that he hung out with them for a little while, but left them eventually. And that these two allegedly committed the murder and confessed to him. So Tony Bryant says that his friends confessed to this. That's correct. These two are Adolph Hasbrook and Bert Tinsley. And according to Bryant, they were drunk and violent and talked about going caveman on some woman and that Hasbrook had seen Martha before and he describes him being obsessed with her beautiful blonde hair. Tony said that he told his mother this at the time and that his mother said that you shouldn't tell anyone this is gonna look really bad. You're a blackmail here. You're gonna be the one they're gonna pin this crime on. You need to keep your mouth closed. Let me keep going. Tony would tell the story again under oath and none of this information can be verified though. In Mm -hmm. fact, authorities can't even verify that they were in Greenwich on the night Mm -hmm. of Halloween. And in Skakel's appeal, the judge on Skakel's appeal noted that Bryant had a trail of deceit that would have tainted any testimony he would give and his credibility. Bryant changed his story a couple times, and he he didn't want to testify. And then he also, over the years, had a number of run-ins with the law. So, uh, and he he lied about passing a bar exam to get a job his credibility would have been substantially problematic. And they just couldn't verify this information, even though Robert Kennedy says they did say to someone, you know, we do know that they were there. Now, you had asked about DNA, and while there wasn't much DNA, apparently there were two hairs found on Martha's body, and one was from an African-American male. And I don't know if it was found on her body or near her body. And here's the problem. I mean, what we've already said, that crime scene was there, there, She ship. was also at a party that night. There could have been someone it, there that was she it. was talking to. He's saying gyna. because the hair was found there. But I, we, we both know that's not exact. DNA, no. even though DNA is exact, the transference of DNA or reasons why a hair might appear yeah. on someone There's any number of explanations. Mm -hmm. So Robert Kennedy says the prosecution of Michael Skakel was a mixture of ineptitude and corruption. They made a ton of mistakes. He said that Mark Furman branded him and Dominic Dunn branded him just so they could write books and kind of, you know, for their own purposes. Kennedy makes a point of discussing the Skakel's cooperation with the police and the fact that they were suspects from the very beginning, contrary to what Dominic Dunn and some other critics thought. Kennedy also points out, I already went over this point, so I won't spend time on it, but that Michael Skakel was very small at the time, and he couldn't have hit that hard. I don't know. He couldn't have dragged her body. None of these points actually resonate with me. His theories have been met with criticism, especially since this information was available and reported in 2003, but neither the defense nor the prosecution believed it was credible. And if it had
1: any wait to it at all you know the defense would have looked into it
0: i thought so but that was one of the reasons mickey sherman was also looked at as being or doing an inept oh. job is that he ignored this got it he took a lot of criticism i have to say he was one of those when i read uh, mickey sherman did a pretty good job on cross examination and you know, with the Elon witnesses, but he sort of dropped the ball on a couple of these things. They're right. I mean, in all in all honesty, he should have thrown Tommy Skakel under the bus or Ken Littleton. He should have pointed. Yeah. There's good evidence to show you have two other suspects. So I actually believe that it, he did have some form of ineffective counsel. Does Tommy and Michael have a relationship throughout all this? So it's a good question. I read that in the courtroom, it was a very weird feel because you have the Moxies on one side and they seem like a united front. Then you have the Kennedy's Skakels on the other side and they come in and out. Yeah. Some people want Once in a while, one of the reporters who wrote on this case said they maybe saw Tommy and Michael once together exchange a brief kind of, they said it seemed very cold, like the the feel on the side of the the Skakels was that somebody would show up once in a while to be there, but there wasn't this united, strong family front, which seems to fit with what we've learned. So as of today, the only person that served time was Michael Skakel, served 11 years, and I likely think that he will not be retried. It's hard to tell after I reviewed this. I had I had always believed that Michael Skakel was responsible. And though I certainly can't be certain, and I do see doubt, I do see reasonable doubt, I still do believe that Michael Skakel is the perpetrator in this crime.
1: I was going to ask you, the court of
0: public opinion is that he's guilty, you would say? Court of public opinion, majority, is that he's guilty or that Tommy Skakel is guilty or they were in it together. Okay. Just another saga in the Kennedy story, but I I bring it back to Martha and I sincerely hope that the truth is revealed one day because without, really without the truth, she doesn't get the justice she deserves. Does Martha's family believe it? he's guilty? So at least they
1: might feel like there was closure because he spent some time?
0: They believe that he was guilty and they described having to go through this for over 50 years. And, you know, the ups and the downs were were just so hard for them. But they do believe the right person has been named and Mm -hmm. at least punished to some degree. Okay. Well, thank you, Megan. That was a fascinating case. It really was an interesting case and one that stuck with me, probably because I had read the book around the time I wasn't that much older than Martha. And Mm -hmm. I remember feeling that carefree, like, I walk through the yard. I'm yep. going home. I, I identified with yep. her. And then I thought, wow, how na- naive we had, you know, I had been about what could possibly happen to me. And yep. I think that's why it scared me. Yep. All right. Thank you, everyone. Thanks so much for
1: bringing us a great case this week. And now it's time for some listener questions. What do we
0: have this week, Megan? Oceana from Stevens Point, Wisconsin wants to know, what is or was the most difficult part of being or becoming a criminologist? I'll let you go first on <clears throat> that, Amy.
1: Honestly, Megan, writing my dissertation was so difficult for me. It felt like it was never going to end. And the dissertation defense itself was quite frightening. I still have nightmares about it.
0: I have to agree. I would love to be original, but I'm going to say the dissertation process was so painful for me. I had so many revisions. I had a committee that disagreed on certain things. Items, I had a very hard dissertation defense. And it was interesting because one of the professors who mentored me said, Oh, you know, if you think the dissertation's hard, like it's going to be much harder out there. This is the easy part. (laughs) Disagree completely. Researching on my own after that has been a much more enjoyable process for me and less stressful.
1: I do have to say something else that's very difficult. I just got a very mean rejection letter for an article I submitted to a journal. So that hurt a little bit too.
0: Yeah, that is uh, part of the process as well as we're going through the peer yeah. review. We do get rejection letters. Yes. I don't take them as hard as Amy. Obviously. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but I mean, at some point, I'm kind of getting used to all the rejection, but it still hurts.
0: No, it is. It's, a, it's part of the process, but it's sometimes a challenging one.
1: Yes, it's It's usually constructive criticism the reviewers give, so it just helps you become a better writer and researcher, but it still stings.
0: That's true. And as far as the dissertation goes, you should also probably know that when you start with a cohort in your PhD, you start with whether it's 10 people, 12 people, about half those people will make it and half won't. And the reason why is the dissertation. Usually people complete the do- the coursework. But then you get to the dissertation, and it's daunting. And that's where people sort of just drop off like flies. So I know.
1: I almost dropped off I almost
0: of I almost dropped off as well. Yeah. So I'm proud that we didn't. Well, good thing, because then we wouldn't be sitting here right now. On that note, thank you so much for listening today. We'll catch you next time on Women in Crime. Women in Crime is written and hosted by Megan Sachs and Amy Schlossberg. Our producer and editor is James Varga. Our music is composed by Dessert Media. If you enjoy the show, you can get access to ad-free episodes, exclusive AMAs, and other bonus content for a small monthly contribution through Patreon. To find out more, visit patreon.com slash crime. Sources for today's episode come from the Stanford Advocate, the Hartford Current, the American Justice episode, The Martha Moxley Case, the Associated Press, and interviews with Robert Kennedy. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing
1: June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s.